Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. It's very funny. Uh, my guest today, um, a few years back, I, I met him, and, and I had not done musicians on Cooper Talk. And I remember sitting there, and it was in my uh, heavy going out and drinking every night days, and I, I strand on, walked into a bar called Wakano down here in Burbank because they had a, a late night happy hour. And you know me, people, I like the deal. And uh, if it's cheap, I'm going there. And actually, it's not cheap anymore. It's $5 for a happy hour, which for a beer, which just kills me. Because anywhere else, that's not a freaking happy hour. Anyway, I saw him. He had, he had longer hair. And he was sitting with John Karabi, who's uh, also, as Troy is, both excellent musicians. And uh, I set up. I said, you guys in a band? And we started talking. And about we, kept, we became friends on Facebook. And about six months later, six months later, I hit him up because I said, I'm going to start doing musicians. And he was the first musician on my show. And it's weird because he's a drummer. And I think my brother was a drummer. So I've always liked drummers. And I've had so many great drummers. And he's back on the show. And my guest is Troy Patrick Farrell. How are you doing, Troy? What's up, Steve Cooper? It's a pleasure and an honor as always. Well, it's funny. I, I remember meeting you that night, and it's so weird because I, I never had musicians. And and let's be honest. And you know, and you know, you've been in the business for a long time. You know, you could tell a musician. And if, if I walked up, you know, you know, if your hair was in a ponytail, I might have thought you might be a magician. But because yeah, that's like older guys. <laughs> but no. So but so you've you've always have you always had the rock and roll look? Pretty much since I was uh, twelve. You know, I I, I had to decide if I wanted to grow my hair long or quit the football team uh, because there was a there was you know a, a dress code so to speak and so I but but wrestling didn't have you know uh, a hair length code so I, I quit football and I was little anyway so I wasn't I uh, wasn't starting or anything and uh, so I, I went to wrestling and actually ended up doing really good in, in wrestling uh, went to state I was I was uh, you know small but mighty you know we had a small school so I'd have to wrestle above my weight class but I was fast and little, so um, I did pretty good in, in, in wrestling. I was able to have long hair, you know, and it was only up until about uh, with 2001 when I did my first Mike Tramp solo tour, uh, first time ever touring with Mike Tramp from uh, White Lion, uh, that he sort of persuaded me to cut my hair. Uh, I cut it basically all the way down to, you know, I could, I could walk into, uh, you know, a doctor's office or, you know, look like an attorney or something, you know. And uh, and that's the last time I cut my hair, but that was the first time since I was twelve that I really cut it, and the last time. So it's it's been, uh, gosh, you know, what was that? Sixteen years <laughs> since I've had a short haircut. So to answer your question, uh, I've always had this look. You know, it's a, it's a it's a way of life. It's no fashion, Steve Cooper. What what was the reason for him to have you cut your hair? Was there? Did he say, okay, Troy, you don't need you need to do this because you want to look different? Or I mean, it's just weird to sit there and think, especially because you know. The, you know, you're a drummer, and drummers, you know, you think they're the renegades, which I've learned they aren't. Drummers, and no offense, my friends who are singers and guitar players, but the drummers are usually the smartest guys in the band. They always have something else going on. They're always planning, you know, you know, you guys, like, I know you do some road managing and stuff like that. You guys always have shit going on. But the drummer, you want to see a guy drumming and flipping his hair around. I mean, what was his <laughs> thought process telling you to cut your hair? You know, I, and this was even after the tour, so this wasn't like to fit in more with what he was doing. But you know, Mike's been trying to, uh, you know, not, I don't want to say disassociate himself from the '80s, but you know, you know, really um, see his transition through from an '80s, you know, r you know, rock star to the singer songwriter guy that he is now. And and he had been, you know, really 
trying to to be that singer songwriter, that Brian Adams, that Bruce Springsteen, you know, uh, Bob Dylan kind of vibe, and um, and so he, you know, did a, a, a physical transformation, you know, appearance wise, you know, his, his own self, you know. So he had, at the time we were out touring, had short, kind of spiky hair, but still, you know, still he's a rock and roller, you know. Doesn't matter the the length of his hair, he he was always a rock and roller. But you know, I had really long hair, you know, and I wouldn't say it was eighties looking, but it was just kind of long and. You know, this is you know, kind of nineties. Uh, you know, I don't know. It was it wasn't it wasn't looking like poison or anything. I wasn't doing hairspray or anything, but it was just long. So you know, when I cut it to go do that tour, and he made some mild suggestions. I basically did what all the eighties guys did, and they just went in and they just like blunt cutted six inches off, and that was their new look. You know, where it's the same hair. You know, you just cut it a little shorter. It wasn't like a new style. So when I when I got back from the from that tour, he took me to one of his. Uh, hairstylist on Melrose, he paid for it, and he says, dude, just cut it all off, let it go, and start over. You'll have a brand new, fresh cut, and, and that's kind of what I did. That's what I did. I took his word for it. It was the first time I'd had long hair since I was, you know, 10, 10 or 11, or first time I had short hair, I should say, since, uh, since I was that young. Now, when did, I know we've talked about this before, but my new listeners won't know. Uh, when did you start playing drums? And what got you into drums? I mean, what, what, at what age? Because you said you were a pretty successful wrestler. And I know wrestling was one of those sports that, you know, you have to be so conscious of your weight. And it's one of those things that consumes a lot of your time. When did you start playing the drums? Uh, yeah, I started when I was uh, 12. And uh, my, my brother, Sean, took me to go see Dio, which was my first concert, Dio and Rough Cut in Chicago at the Rosemont Horizon and he got us like 12th row tickets we were right up there and I, I you know I'd never been to a rock concert before I'd seen you know musicians my my dad always had music going on in the house uh, my brother Sean before school you know was always blasting Aerosmith Van Halen you know Dio Finn Lizzy all that stuff so there was always music in my house my, my dad had a huge record collection and was always spinning 45s and the Beatles and the Letterman and, you know, everything, you know. And, and, and so music was always definitely going to be a part of my life, you know, whether I just be a fan or, or start playing it. Um, my brother Sean played bass in a band, still plays bass to this day. He was uh, playing out since he was 12 uh, with uh, some brothers, three brothers down the street, a few houses down from us. So he, he was always gigging, gigging in bars since he was 12, you know, singing ACDC. My brother Scott played guitar, you know, a little bit more of a novelty, but he was playing guitar for the, the school band choir, you know, for performance and stuff. He'd be, you know, the uh, accompaniment for that. So those guys played. I went to the Steel concert. I saw Vinny Apathy up there on that drum kit, and I was like, I want to do that, you know. And a lot of my friends in school were, were in band, and uh, it just was like a natural program. It was just a matter of me getting bit by the bug that it was inevitable I was going to play something and drums just spoke to me you know now you start playing and at what point do you in your mind say this is going to be my career because it has been your career I mean I don't I, don't, I can't I don't think you've <laughs> I don't think you've ever had another job besides being a drummer I mean at what point did you sit there and say this is going to be my career did you sit there and make a conscious decision and to try to follow that or, or did things just happen they say happen fall happenstance and fall into place yeah i think it's more you know the latter you know where things just kind of fall, you, you find yourself just doing it you know you want to you want to go out and do gigs so in order to do gigs you've got to do you know certain things you know you get guys in a band rehearse some songs and 
you know, you, you take a photo shoot, you put together a flyer, you know, back in the day, you know, now you put together a flyer, you do everything on a computer, it's super easy. You know, back in the day, you know, you were cutting and, you know, using a glue stick and gluing stuff on, you know, you know, kind of like a ransom letter, you know, putting all these different cutouts of photos and then, you know, taking it to, you know, a copy copy place and photocopying them, you know, it was crude, but, you know, it was also authentic and grassroots and, you know, we've come a long way from that, but man, there's, there's something charming about those old days, you know, because we didn't have these things like we do, you know, I can put together a flyer on my phone right now while I'm talking to you, but, uh, you know, it was way more fun back then. And, um, you know, so you just find yourself, you know, trying to keep this passion that you have alive. And, and, you know, next thing you know, it's, you know, I lived in LA for 22 years. Now I live in Las Vegas. I'm still playing music. It's, you know, you have to go back. It's, it's, these are great questions because it takes me back to, you know, what really got me started. Um, but, you know, to, to uh, fill in the gap about other jobs, dude, I've done everything. I, was, uh, I, I worked at, for a lighting company, uh, retrofitting Ralph's supermarkets when they went from the T12 to the T8, um, fluorescent lights, you know, energy-saving lights. Uh, I worked for an electronics moving company. I could drive a semi. I could back a trailer in. You could drive spot, a semi? You know. Absolutely. I, I don't have my uh, my license for that. I was going to go to school. I was going to go to, like, probably Debbie Deason or something. For those of you who live in California, Deason was the uh, the big truck trucking school company. It was the, the funniest commercials. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I can back, a, you know, a 53-footer, you know, with a Peterbilt or, you know, whatever into, uh, you know, into a dock space. Um, you know, I can drive a forklift. I've done every. I've really done everything. You know, I've, I've actually got my first job when I was around ten or eleven, riding my bike to uh, to Hessville to wash dishes. That was my first gig. My first gig was uh, being a paper boy, and I freaking hated it because you have to get up, you have to get the papers. You drove your bike, and when it, even when it was snowing, the roads were icy. You still had to drive your bike, and you you know you throw the papers. And I still remember this one house, and I swear to God. I'm going to go back. And the people probably moved, but I remember where it was. Yeah. And those bastards must owe me like 38 bucks. And this is from 1970. <laughs> so with interest, I'm looking, I'm sitting on 10,000. I think I should find those people and sue their freaking asses because they always, it was one of those things when you go to ring the doorbell to collect, they'd never be home. They'd be home, but the lights would go off. And, uh, and it was only like a yeah. buck 50 a week. It's still, I, I should track them down. I, that's, that's the thing I'm going to do. So, so now, now you it's, play- it's, it's pretty, it, it's pretty bad when you're hiding under the windowsill from your, from your paper boy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now you, as you're drumming, when was, was Mike, uh, was he your first break? Was White Line your first like big band? I know you've been playing forever, but like, what was your first break where you said, all right, man, you know, this this is what it's about. Yeah, you know, I, I did a tour earlier in two thousand one um, with a band called Volcanic, and it was a uh, it was a new band. It was on Art Alexakis's uh, say that three times fast. Uh, he, he's the lead singer from the band Everclear, and he had a vanity label called Popularity Records. And this band Volcanic was signed to them. And we did in two thousand one in January. We did a Canadian tour. I said January and Canada together. <laughs> So, you know, it was brutally cold. Um, but we, we opened up for um, Everclear and this new band, which would actually break that year, called Nickelback. And now, you know, Nickelback's huge. And, but, you know, this was, this was a, and, you know, they were opening up for Everclear. We were the first band on the bill. And so we were playing hockey arenas. So 
that was the first kind of real tour that I had done. I, I'd done some touring before. I, you know, driven out of state. You know, I've, I've been doing that since I was a kid. But this, I think, was the first time. You know, I had my passport, and we were traveling, you know, basically strictly in Canada playing hockey arenas. And it, that was like, that was my taste of kind of the big time, you know, seeing that, that big production and, uh, and watching a band, a little band, little known band, you know, from Vancouver called Nickelback or they're from Western Canada become this big band. You know, we get back in the States and that song, How You Remind Me, like hit. And I'm like, I just toured with these guys for five weeks, you know? So that was really the first taste of it. But, you know, going out with Mike Tramp was, you know, I got to learn really how it's done you know, from somebody that had done it, you know, and, and Mike, Mike, even though he had such uh, success with, with White Lion, he was starting over as a solo artist, you know, and, and people wanted to hear White Lion, dude. they didn't want to hear his solo album, you know, but uh, he stuck to his guns and realized that he had to take a couple steps back and kind of start over, but you start over with knowledge now, you know, so it's a little easier than starting for the first time, but it's still quite humbling, I would imagine. Why do people always give Nickelback a hard time? I always compare them to, like, the Travago guy. Like, everybody hates the Travago guy on a TV commercial, and I think he seems like a nice guy. I have nothing against Nickelback music, but so many people always bust their balls. I mean, why? Is it because they're Canadian? I don't understand it. You know, I don't know. It's, I, I think it's, it's kind of, you know, the in thing to do, uh, I guess. To, I, and I don't know where it started, but... Um, I dig them, man. I watch them every night, and I, I was like, this band kicks ass. They, they do kick ass, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, they certainly have their sound, and, you know, I think a lot of people hate success, you know, because they don't have it. And, you know, they, here's this band. They came kind of from out of nowhere, and every song they put out is essentially a number one hit. And, and they were, every song was a number one single for them for many, many years, and they still do good. They still play arenas, you know. Uh, they, just, they just did a, a circuit, you know, last, a year or the last year or so that I did with Motley Crue and Alice Cooper that playing all the same same sheds there was a chance that uh, I was going to go out on that tour which would have been a lot of fun but I was like hey these are all the same places we just played which just tells me that Nickelback is still as big as ever you know what I mean it's just a few people that have uh, an internet connection and a free Facebook account I guess yeah it's funny I always crack up because I mean I'll make jokes too just to do it but then I'm sitting there and I'm like I don't know why they get a hard time so now, now when you play with Mike uh yeah, I know we had talked about this before. You got to play in India, and uh, I know it was a, a huge venue. What was that like, and how many people were there, and what is it? You know, you were playing arenas, but I'm sure it goes different from when you're playing an arena in America or Canada, which is, you know, contained, and, and you're used to that. But then you, I think, didn't you play a big place in India? And what's it like playing in a country where it must be a little, I mean, it must be depressing getting to the gig because. India is so beridden with poverty. I mean, it must be just a, a different experience, and it must make you sit there when you're at your kit in front of a bunch of people at a stadium. It must make you really appreciate what you have in life. Well, absolutely. It's, um, you know, India, people ask me, you know, what's the favorite place you've ever been to? And, and I've been to India. I've been fortunate enough to, to have been back there two times since 2008. So I've been there three times. And um, I, I got to tell you, you know, they, they have the fewest things, you know, out of all the places I've been, and they are the most generous people uh, I've ever met. You know, they will give you the shirt off their back if they have one. You know, it's just, it's just how they are. They're so appreciative of, of Westerners, and they appreciate that, you know, a band comes out from, you know, we, you know, they know where we live, and, you know, 
and they know how fortunate we are, and they are just like, wow, the fact that you're you're able to leave that, come out here to entertain us, it, it, you know, they are just beyond thankful. Um, you know, so that that has been the first time, 2008, with White Lion, that I have played a venue that big. We played soccer stadium at this point. Uh, we played two shows in the Northeast Territory. Uh, it's called Dimapur and Shillong was the other place, and it was 33,000 and 42,000, you know, respectively. You know, so we, we did, you know, 75,000 plus people in, in two shows, uh, you know, White Line in 2008, you know, just showing you that rock and roll is still relevant, you know, in, in many places around the world. But, you know, you go India, why India? But, uh, you know, they love ballads out there. They are a huge ballad band. So if you had you know, a More Than Words, or if you had, you know, like, Warren Head Heaven, or I Saw Red, if you had that stuff, you know, Firehouse, Love of a Lifetime, they love Firehouse, they love, you know, 18 in Life by Skid Row, huge, huge bands uh, to them, and, and they love that genre, so, you know, we, we did about a three-hour show, and we did every ballad White Line ever wrote, you know, and, and they, they, they sing it to you, it's crazy, you know, there, there were songs that were probably never performed live by White Line, because, it, it it wasn't appropriate, but out in, in India, they, they love it. They want to hear everything. Now, in your career, you know, and a lot of drummers, you know, you, you guys play for different bands. I know you played for Cheap Thrills. Was that the one band? Yeah, yeah, Cheap Thrills. It's kind of, a, you know, a, an all-star, if you will, a band of, uh, you know, friends that just, you know, we, we find that we have a matching schedule of time off and, we get together and play some music from all of our associations. How, no, how, as a drummer though, because you know, the drummer is, like I always say, you know, when you think of the drummer and the bass, it's like, I'm a big baseball fan. And the drummer and the bass are like the middle of the infield, the second baseman, the shortstop, uh-huh. and the center fielder. You need that. It's the backbone. I mean, you know, you look, remember the old Stones videos when Charlie Watts would look at Bill Wyman, and they weren't going crazy. They always have to cut in. But for you, because you have to basically, you control the tempo. What is it like when you play with a band like Cheap Trills? Because I know there's a guy, uh, uh, Brittenham from Cinderella and a few other bands. You have to learn all those music. Do you have to go through like the whole catalog? Or do they come to you and say, hey, Troy, we're going to play you know, Gypsy Road, this, this. Or do you have to sit there and go, okay, i got to learn all these Cinderella songs. i got to learn all these band songs. You had to learn a White Lion song, so you knew them. But what's the process when you go to a band like that where it is an all-star collection and you do you sit there and pick the certain songs you're going to play or, play, or do you guys just go, okay, we got to learn all these catalogs? Yeah, you know, we we um, we try and simplify it, and you know, because the gig's supposed to be fun, and we want that to translate to uh, you know the people that are coming out to see the band. So we play the obvious songs, you know, um, by you know, for example, you mentioned Brittingham, you know, from Cinderella. So we're doing, you know, maybe we're doing Shake Me, we're doing Gypsy Road, we're doing you know, uh, night songs, you know, uh, whatever makes sense, you know, we're doing, we're, we're, we, it's kind of a less is more approach, you know, and if, uh, you know, something else, you know, Heartbreak Station comes up, then we say, let, let's noodle that in the, uh, in the uh, hotel and see if we can pull it off at soundcheck, you know, so, um, but we keep, we keep it simple, you know, uh, we do, you know, we throw in a radar love and, you know, we've had different guys in that band, which is, which is kind of cool because it's a revolving door, so if, if, uh, you know, one guy can't do it, then we've got Joel Colshay from Collective Soul coming in. So then we'll throw in a couple Collective Soul songs, you know, which, you know, we learn. Uh, you know, John Karabi perhaps comes in or Chuck Garrick from Alice Cooper, you know. So then we'll throw in Schools Out, you know. 
And then even when those guys aren't around, we can still kind of play those songs because it's, it's all relevant to everybody that's been in the band, you know? Now, how did you... How do you... Well, they're great songs. Oh, yeah, they're, they're great classic. songs. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to play Schools Out, <laughs> you know? What Now, how did you end up meeting all these guys? Because, you know, as a musician... You know, I mean, is it something just because you're in L.A. or I know because like I know I think Brittingham lives in Nashville because Jeff Labar was just on the show a while ago. He lives in Nashville. But how do you how do you the kind of musicians meet? You guys just someone hears it like you're a good drummer or does someone say, hey, you got to meet Troy. He's a cool cat. I mean, how does that work? How does a band like that start? You know, it's I kind of like look at it as, uh, you know, meeting some guys, you know, at the basketball court in a pickup game of, of, of hoops, you know. Um, you, you're all there for the same reason. You, you play all the same venues. You, um, you know, just kind of run in the same circles. And word of mouth gets out. Hey, you know, I play with this guy, and he, you know, he's he's good at you know booking gigs and you know putting artwork together, and, he, and he's a great drummer, whatever, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And you know, it's, it, music, especially you know the rock and roll genre, it, it's a pretty small and incestual group of guys, you know. You know, you'll see all these guys rotating in and out of, like, the same four or five bands, you know. Plus, we're all friends, and we all dig each other, so who doesn't want to play with their friends, you know? Now, last time I saw I saw you perform, you uh, it was funny because you got me, uh, me and my buddy JP, you got us tickets to, uh, you were playing with Gilby at Lucky Strike. It was a margarita uh, festival type thing. And what cracks me up was these people were there for the margaritas, and then yeah. when the margarita, when the tequila ran out, they left. And me and JP loved it because we got to see you guys right up front. How did you start your relationship with Gilby Clark? And I got to tell you, I met Gilby once. He's been on the show. But I had Ace Von Johnson on a few weeks ago from uh, Faster Pussycat. Faster Pussycat. And he said Gilby is like the most coolest person, has the most integrity, and just like that's what – and he said, you know, you do meet some dicks in the business, but he goes, he wishes everybody was like Gilby because he's such an upstanding guy. How did you meet Gilby? And was it, you know, when you start to play with someone like that, I mean, I know you played with Mike from White Lion, but there's a difference between White Lion and Guns N' Roses. You know, Guns N' Roses just blew the L.A. scene open and Gilby played for them. What's it like when you meet someone like Gilby and then when you get to play for him? It must just be, I mean, a really unbelievable compliment. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I was actually working at a booking agency um, back in, in uh, you know, 2010. And I had left that booking agency that I was, you know, with for about three three years or so uh, because I was out touring with Karabi. Uh, you know, it turns out I had booked a tour with Karabi as his agent, not as his drummer. And uh, his drummer at the time that was supposed to do the gig last minute couldn't do it. And... So the, the tour was sort of in jeopardy because we, we build it as the triple threat, you know, with Bats Pussycat and, and uh, Tracy Guns and, and then John Karabi. And I spearheaded that, the, the booking of that tour. Next thing you know, John's calling me going, dude, I don't know if I can do it. I don't have a drummer, you know. And, I, and, and John was my roommate for a couple years. And, you know, uh, so I was like, well, dude, you know, if the tour, you know, if the tour is, uh, you know, in jeopardy, then let me. You know, let me put on the, the stage clothes and some eyeliner and let's go out and do these <laughs> do these songs. You know, so I went out and, and learned all the, the Motley Crue stuff that uh, John did, um, you know, back in 94. Um, that's a great album, by the way. If you haven't heard that one, pick up that album. It's, it's MC94, my favorite Motley Crue album. Uh, definitely, a, a, you know, a different, uh, different sound than the classic Motley Crue. But, uh, man, it's a great album, no matter how you slice it or what you call it. But anyway, so... Um, 
you know, with that being said, once that tour got done, um, you know, it was getting later in the year and, you know, bookings slow down, you know, once it comes like fall, winter time, you know, a lot of the clubs stop booking, everybody waits until the next year to start over again. And so, you know, I was kind of, you know, without a gig and wasn't really doing any more um, agency stuff, uh, at least until perhaps the next year. And, and Gilby was on our roster and wasn't working much, didn't have a lot going on. He was uh, pretty much just recording at his studio. He records a lot of bands. And, I, you know, I hit him up, uh, you know, hey, you know, Gilby, what are you doing? You, you know, some people are asking about some dates. You want to do some dates? Well, I don't really have a band, you know, is what he said to me. And I said, well, what if you had a band? Can you do some dates? People want to know what you're up, you know, what you're up to. And he says, well, yeah, but I don't have a band. But if I had a band, I said, well, why don't we come down there and play? And it was myself and EJ Curse who EJ played 2008 with White Lion, so EJ and I were friends uh, from that experience. And uh, Gilby and EJ had played together in the early 2000s, you know. So we all knew each other through degrees of separation. And when I approached Gilby about, you know, getting together at his house, playing a couple songs to see how it felt, it was natural that EJ would be there and the three of us would, you know, become friends and and play together now. We've played together for seven years. You know, we're starting our seventh year together. And um, I've been to six Sturgis motorcycle rallies, you know, five of them with Gilby. Um, you know, we ride together. Uh, we play together. It, it, it really is a cool it's a cool situation all the way around, you know, because we're, we're all good friends. And we do things outside of music together, which is great. Now, how did you end up in at the agency, the booking agency? I know, you know, and I know you've dabbled in tour management. And I think that was... Also, because for you, it was get the bands what they want. I mean, I went through that when I did comedy. You know, when I did comedy, one week I remember playing at Trump's Castle in Atlantic City. Beautiful, you know, hotel room and all that. And then next week, I'm doing a one-nighter in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I'm staying in a converted trailer park. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. But I know, you know, how did you get into the agency? And also, you've, you've booked, you've done some tour manager work. Is that just something that you really enjoy or is it something that you do it because you think that the artist should be treated like artists, which I believe they do. I think a lot of times musicians and comics are treated as like circus performers. Nothing against circus performers if you're listening. But, you know, they, you know, you get sometimes you get some really crappy crappy accommodations. What got you into the agency? I mean, was that was that hard for you to do because you weren't drumming at the time and it was easy because you love music? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of everything, you know, the tour management and, you know, uh, finding my way into the booking agency um, came about by, I was, I was playing drums. I, you know, I've always kind of played in a couple different bands, rotating in and out. I mean, I, I, I tried to develop my own identity just as a person as opposed to being the guy that plays in this band because I, I, I haven't always played in one band. I, I think I'm best known for doing White Lion. Um, I, I spent, you know, the most time with that band you know, consistently, and, um, and, and it really kind of cut my teeth being in that band, and, and obviously that's a proud experience for me, and, and that, that experience alone has allowed me to do all these other things, because, you know, it's sort of kind of like, oh, hey, he's in the club, he's done it before, so, you know, it's not some new fresh kid off the boat, you know, um, or off the bus coming into Hollywood, you know, for the first time with, with big eyes and big dreams, it's, you know, somebody that's like, okay, he gets it, he's done it before, he's played with Tramp, he knows what the deal is, you know, so... Um, that that's allowed me to do a lot of things, and, and one of the bands I ended up playing with for a short stint was a band called Pretty Boy Floyd, and the guitar player of that band owns the agency, Artists Worldwide, which uh, which I worked for for three years. So I was booking 
a lot of my favorite bands, Faster Pussycat, The Misfits, um, you know, U.S. Bombs, uh, you know, you name them, uh, Stephen Piercy, Gilby Clark, we got John Karabi over there, we were booking Tracy Guns, you know, so these are all guys that I became friends with and, you know, sort of a business liaison on a different level because, you know, when these bands go out and tour, it's, it's never pretty. And, you know, so, you know, if you get a deli tray and a case of water and a decent hotel room, you're, you're doing pretty good, you know, and it, it has to start from the ground up, you know, to fight for that stuff for the bands because, you know, the promoters are trying to make as much money as possible and spend as little as possible. And the bands are trying to make as much money and be as comfortable as possible because they're traveling in a van or if they're fortunate enough, they're maybe in a bus that might break down once a week. You know, because listen, at the end of the day, this is, we're not talking millions of dollars. This is not Rihanna or Beyonce. I mean, this is, this is low level touring. It's hard and it's gritty and, um, and it's not always pretty, you know. So the agents are the ones that, you know, have to kind of go to, go to battle for the bands. And being in a band myself and seeing what it's like out there, I know firsthand what the deal is. And, and so with that, I get a little bit of leverage, I'd like to think. Now, since you've been on last time, you know, you've done a lot of different things. I know you play with Enough's Enough. How did that happen? I mean, because you, you are, you know, you've played with a lot of bands and you play with some good bands and it shows that, you know, once again, you're a good drummer because one, they hire you and two, you do have to learn. It's not like, you know, some people, I'm sure there's some drummers out there who have played with the same band their whole career and only know those songs. And if they have to learn other songs, probably like, what? You know, I'm not used to this tempo. Like, how did you end up playing with Enough's Enough? And I know you toured with them for a while because you were jumping around. I knew you used to post on Facebook. You know, you were with Gilby, you were with Enough's Enough, the Raskins. How did you end up with, uh, I guess it's Chip, right? Yeah, yeah. Chip and, uh, well, you know, I've known Chip and, and Donnie, uh, the original singer for, I mean, they were one of the first bands in Chicago that was really kind of, you know, like my brother grew up on, you know, Cheap Trick was like the local favorite, you know, and, and so my generation, you know, in the mid, mid 80s, Enough's Enough was the big band that broke out of Chicago with a record deal. And I would go see them, you know, play the Thirsty Whale or, you know, Stay Out West or the Gateway Theater. And, you know, I became a big fan of, of Vic Fox, the drummer. And so just seeing those guys since the mid 80s, um, I became to know them on a personal level. You know, my brother would take me to the gigs because I was too young. So I would always try and meet them or whatever, you know, because I just, I just dug their music. They had the, that Beatles sound, that Cheap Trick sound. Um, just totally dug it. So, again, another band that was on the roster, uh, you know, White Lion in 2005 took out uh, Enough's Enough as a support act. So we all shared a bus together. It was uh, Chip and Chip and uh, Johnny Monaco, and you know who I've known for twenty years. It, it just kind of made sense when they were looking for a drummer and needed some uh, needed somebody to, to fill in some West Coast dates. You know that they call me. You know because I've known Johnny for a long time. We toured together uh, in our respective bands. So and and I've known Chip forever. You know and he knows I know the songs and he knows that I love the music. And uh, you know Chip's always my brother. I, I I love that guy. He's probably one of the coolest guys out there in rock and roll for sure. Now. You ended up, and you also played with the Raskins, which I, I think that's the last time I saw you. I saw you at the, uh, I don't know if I saw you before, I don't know if I saw Gilby before, but I saw you with Crew and Alice at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, and I remember because someone gave us, uh, Joanna made like a Raskins pin, and I 
like a uh-huh. postcard, and I was like, yeah, I know the drummer. You know, like me, because I'm a dick. I like to drop names. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't need this crap. You know, the drummer had Thanksgiving at my house. Yeah, go away, peasant. But uh, what? Um, how did you end up hooking up with them? And then what was the whole... I mean, I know. I think for you, that tour came out of nowhere, but how did you hook up with the Raskins? And tell the listeners who the Raskins are, because I know you're playing with them in Sayreville in May. Um, tell them a little who the Raskins are and how you hooked up with them and what kind of music you guys play. Yeah, the, you know, the Raskins uh, used to be called Logan's Heroes, and it's, uh, it's Roger and Logan uh, Raskin from New York City. And they, they've been in L.A. for a long time, uh, you know, as an independent original rock band and, and you know, there's quite a few of those, but a lot of people don't stick that out. It's a tough road to go because, you know, you want to get out there and make some money, so it's typical that you put together a cover band instead. Um, but uh, but these guys have been sticking it out, cutting their teeth in L.A. and New York for, you know, over a decade or so. And, and I actually, you know, funny story is that Vic Fox from Enough's Enough used to be the drummer in Logan's Heroes. And when Vic couldn't do some shows because he was going on to another band called the Veronica's, uh, he says, hey, man, there's this cool band I'm working with. You should check them out. I- I'm not doing gigs for a little bit. And so it was kind of Vic that, you know, put them in, in my uh, my vision, you know. And so I became good friends with uh, with Logan and came up to do some shows. They'd call me. We'd do a show maybe at the Roxy or we'd go do a gig at the Viper Room. You know, it's just occasional shows here and there. And then when they started putting together some tours, um, they asked me about it and, and, you know, said, hey, can you can you help us? you know, kind of stay on track and, you know, when do we need to leave to get to the next gig? So they knew that I had that experience and, you know, I can kind of help keep things smooth. And so I've I've been playing with those guys on and off for almost 10 years, you know. And, um, yeah, the Motley Crue thing came up. We did 60 dates in 2014. And then uh, we did Ted Nugent last year, and we're doing uh, Ingbe Malmsteen uh, this year. We leave and start May 5th in Sayreville, and we'll be all the way out until the middle of June. Now, what's that like? I mean, just for the fact that you know, you go. I know you play when you play with Ted. You played at the uh, Saban or Saban, whatever how you pronounce it. But what's it like? You know, you're playing with bands like you. You're opening for Motley and uh, Alice, and you're at the Hollywood Bowl, and you're playing these huge venues. And then the Saban is you know smaller because as you know, Ted Nugent is known. You know, he was big back in the day. I think some of his politics have pushed some of his listeners away. I still personally think that Stranglehold is one of the best openings of a song. That whenever I hear that, it just pops me in a good mood. I'm like, this just rocks. And then now with Ingve, because Ingve's not that no, I mean, he's known if you're a guitarist, but so there are more clubs. How do you acclimate to that? Like, how do you get used to like playing from a Hollywood Bowl and then playing at a Saban, which is a great theater, and or playing at clubs? I mean, how as a drummer, do you, is every gig the same, or do you have to sit there and you know when you play at these huge venues, your mind frame must be different? You know, a little bit. I mean, at the end of the day, a gig's a gig, and you know, you, you know, the saying is, you know, you, you, you play for one person like you're playing for ten thousand people. You know, you, they get the same show, and um, and you know, we're out there. You know, the Raskins are. You know, this is this is a promotional tour where you know some people are going to know the band, not everybody, especially maybe the Ingbe crowd. Uh, you know, same thing for Ted Nugent when when the band got asked to go out to Ted Nugent, I was like. I wonder how this is going to go because you know that's a different demographic and and a, and a different music and you know I got to tell you the music crowd was super enthusiastic for the band and I it was it was great you know I was like wow this is a kick ass crowd Ted's crowd 
kicks ass. They want to hear good rock and roll, you know. So we peppered in a couple of cover tunes just to kind of, you know, you create an association with people and then, you know, hit them with the original stuff and they dug it. And, you know, we're going to do the same thing with, with uh, Yngwie because obviously that's going to be a very guitar-driven crowd. Um, and, you know, we've got great guitar player in the band for sure. But, um, you know, these are songs that we're trying to deliver, not uh, one guy's performance. So we're going we're gonna to go and do the same thing. We're going to try and make friends with uh, Yngwie's crowd every night. And, and be a, a good support act and, and get people enthusiastic to see who they're there to see. And, and hopefully they walk out there going, yeah, I came to seeing they and God, I got to check out a cool new band in the process. That's, that's the goal. Now, when it comes to L.A., because we know how L.A. people are, and what was it like when you played at the Hollywood Bowl? Because in all honesty, L.A. people are always late. Like, I remember, I mean, Christ, I saw the police at, uh, at Dodger Stadium a few uh, years back. And it was Sting's son was first, and then the Foo Fighters came and just they blew the stadium up. But people were just just getting there at the same time as the police were coming on. Like you know, people le- wait for the last minute. What's that like as a musician when you sit there and you you'll go to an LA and the place when you guys went on wasn't packed, but then you go to another city where people love music and they're not they don't have to deal with the crappy traffic and they're not entitled. What is it like? I mean, yeah. what is it like when you sit there? I mean, when you go to LA as an opener, you have to sit there and yeah, you lived here and you know people here and you're going to know people in the audience, but you also have to know LA people when it comes to being in crowds suck. I mean, I, I mean I'll be honest, they suck. You go to baseball, people come in the fourth inning. As an opening band, it's got to be like, what the hell, we're playing LA? Like, it's not, I mean, I saw Berlin on this 80s show in Anaheim and uh, they opened. It was like they were the first band. And they destroyed the place, but it was only one third full because of LA people. What's it like? And have you seen? Is there any other cities where people just show up late, just to show up late? Yeah, you know, I, I got to say it's a little discouraging at times. You know, when you play LA, you know, you always have to lie to people. You know, you tell them you're on at ten thirty when you're really on at midnight. You know, because you know they're going to come up at midnight anyway. So they're like, "Oh, dude, I'm so glad I didn't miss the show." And it's like I told you ten thirty for a reason because. We all know how it is, you know, and, 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 you know, it's funny when, when I'm in LA and I got a friend's band playing, I'll say, you know, uh, what time are you on? I'll say, but tell me real time, you know, cause I'll be there at the real time, but the, you know, I'm not going to come conveniently late like we all do in, in LA. But, um, Hey, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I have great memories of playing the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, the, you know, the Beatles played there, Cheap Trick, uh, you know, the, the ELO, I mean, countless bands have played there. Um, it's, it's an amazing venue with, with uh, great history. And you know what? Hey, if the place was, uh, you know, one quarter full when we went on, you know, it's okay. I'm okay with that. But uh, I guess, I, you know, you get to the heart of, um, you know, the Midwest. And, you know, if the doors say 6 o'clock, there's a line outside at 4.30, you know, to get in. It, it, they're, you know, they're a little bit more starved for entertainment. In L.A., we're a little spoiled. And, uh, you know, so when we get there. You know, it's just the attitude, I guess. You know, when you got so many wonderful things going on in a beautiful city, you just maybe take it for granted here and there, you know? Now, what is it like, though, for you when you did play on the tour with Motley and Alice Cooper? Because they're both Rock and Roll Hall of Fame type bands. And I'm going to tell you, from start to end, you guys are great. Alice Cooper still freaking delivers. And the guy's like, what, 70? And he's still doing the theatrics and cutting the head off. And he's still the old Alice Cooper. And then Motley Crue just comes out. And, you know, you forget how many hits they have and uh and then tommy with a drum thing that goes over the audience 
What's it like? Like, did you sit there and would you watch those shows or once you were done? I mean, what would you do when you were done? Did you have to hang out or would you go to the tour bus or what would you, what, I mean, what do you guys do when you open for a show like that and there's so many people? I mean, what do you do when you're done playing? Because you can't watch the same set every night because it probably gets boring to you. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, it, you know, we, we saw just about every show. There was a handful that we didn't see. A um, couple shows we had booked some you know, after our opening slot gig, we would travel to another town and play a club as a headliner, you know, somewhere during the week or whatever. So there were, there were a couple gigs out there that we were, we were doing double duty that night, you know, playing two shows a night. Because uh, it was that kind of a tour, it was a promotional tour, you know, trying to, you know, get the band out there to, you know, reach a, a new audience, you know, that, that maybe we may not have the opportunity to do on our own, you know, because it's, it's really tough out there, you know, it's like, I dig your band, but does anybody know you? And it's like, well, no, but that's why we want to come play your club because we want people to know us, you know? And it's sort of a catch-22. But, um, you know, so we, we were doing double duty uh, on, the, on some of those gigs. Um, but, you know, typically after a show, we would, we would get our gear packed up. The first thing was get the bus loaded. So, you know, we go from a sweaty stage to, you know, uh, loading gear, you know? And sometimes we're in, you know, hot weather, cold weather, rain, whatever it was. I mean, typically these... Big arenas have, you know, big warehouses that you can pull your tour bus in. So it was a lot easier. You know, we had our loaders with us, uh, guys from the venue that bring everything to the bus. I would get the bus loaded. Then after Alice Cooper, between Alice Cooper and Motley Crue, we'd go do a meet and greet. So that way, you know, we could sign some autographs, sell some CDs, get some people to get some shirts, and, and just say, hey, take photos. Because that, that's really the idea of these tours is to go out there and be in people's faces and, and you know, let them, you know, try and associate with you, uh, you know, your personality and, you know, where you're from instead of just being on stage and then just disappearing and that's it. You know, you got to you gotta keet their attention a little bit longer. So right after the meet and greet, then we would chill out and then we'd watch, uh, you know, we'd watch some Motley Crue, you know, maybe the whole show. I mean, it's, it was a great show and if I saw it 50 times, I could, I could see it another 50, you know. Now, as a drummer, you know, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned uh, Vinny Apice, which it's weird because his brother was on my show. His brother goes by Carmen Apice. Is that just so they can just separate each other? I don't even know. It's just odd. I mean, but, but you know. I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. I don't know. Whether, yeah, there's Vinny Because he's Carmen Apice. Apice and their brother. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> it's awesome. What, um, now, you know, you, you said when you watched him, he really caught your eye. Who, it's funny because I, I talked to my friend uh, Rich Redman, who dresses, uh, drums for Jason Aldean. And we were talking, like I was talking when Don Rickles had passed away. You know, Don Rickles, to a comic, I said it's sort of like Buddy Rich to a drummer. You know, someone who yeah, was sure. just, just, you know, someone who was a, a factor and was around forever. Who were some of your influences when you were younger? And then as you've drummed and people have, you know, who were some of the inf your influences that have now become peers and you've got to know? And what's that like? Uh, you know, I got to tell you, it's it's a little surreal. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, people are just people. You know, they put their their pants on one leg at a time. You know, just like I do. But um, you don't you don't take that for granted. It, it, it is pretty amazing that you know I, I've shared you know a couple of uh, you know Christmas parties with with Benny. Um, you know, I uh, was booking a a club up in Reno, and I, I booked Benny's band, and you know, exchanged emails with them, and it's like. Hey, is this the same Troy? You know, it's like, yeah, dude, what's up? I'm helping out these guys in this, you know, in Reno with this club, and you know, and I'm booking his band last in line, and it, it, it's just, you know, it is weird, but it's, you know, we're we're all just doing business, and and 
I'm very fortunate to be in the same business as these guys, and it, it, and I do appreciate the fact that uh, you know I think that some of them would consider me a peer, or you know, yeah, hey, he's in the club. You know what I mean? I haven't been in the club as long as they have, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, these guys are booking shows, and and I'm facilitating, or I'm helping out in some way. You know, so you know, we're all part of the same big picture. You know, we're, we're all doing something with music together, and and uh, you know, maybe I've been doing it quite as long, or haven't been as successful, but, you know, I sure am trying, and, and I appreciate that, uh, you know, they let me hang out in, in, the, in the big boys club. Now, as a drummer, like, and when it comes to drummers, what drummers, like, when drummers talk, who do they think are, like, the drummers' drummers? Like, you know, people who are outside of drummers, they always go, you know, you got the bottom people, you got the perk people, you know, it's, uh, you know, that, like, who do drummers, like, in, who would you say, like, drummers sit there? I know, I know, uh, some of the stuff is someone who, very, Brian Tishy is very, very highly, uh, his opinion of him is very high with different drummers. Who do drummers, like, sit there and go, that's the drummer? It's like, you know, basketball players go, crap, we got LeBron. Like, and yeah. who, who do drummers sit there, like, who do you guys put on, like, the top three, like, the pedestal? I mean, would Buddy Rich be one of them because he played different? Or, I mean, how does. How, you know, Max Weinberg, because he's played so many years with Springsteen. I mean, how do drummers, do drummers sit there and go, ah, this drummer's great? And do you guys also, like comics, we go, oh, that guy's a hack? Or I mean, not don't mention any names that you think are a hack, but do drummers sit there and go, oh, that guy sucks? I mean, how, does it, with, how is it with drummers in the drummer world? Yeah, you know, I think with Buddy Rich, he, he's in a world of his own. I mean, really, you know, I mean, you could, you could put a generic top ten list and throw him anywhere on that list, you know, whether it's number, number one or number ten. But I think he kind of just stands on his own. He, he um, you know, still I don't think I've seen anyone quite like him. You know, uh, he's super innovative and, uh, you, know, but, you know, just cool, you know. And even, even though I haven't picked up any of the technical aspects, you know, he was also a very visual drummer and, um, and incorporated, you know, some of these visuals into playing just killer weird patterns, you know, stuff that, you know, would take weeks to, to dissect, you know. Um, you know, you mentioned Brian Tishy, who is, you know, not only a monster drummer, he's a great guitar player, too. You should see him on a speed bag, <laughs> you know. I mean, you should see him playing drums on a speed bag at the same time. I mean, he's definitely, when you say drummer's drummer, uh, you know, he's a drummer's drummer to me, you know. Um, there's a guy named uh, Matt Starr who's out with Mr. Big now, and uh, he played with uh, Ace Fraley. And I, you know, I was actually a drummer in Matt's band when Matt was was fronting and playing guitar called Fastmaster some years ago. And um, you know, Matt is a fantastic drummer, and he's a drummer's drummer too. You know, he he's got the old school chops that you know you watch and go, oh yeah, you know, he's got the bottom stuff down. But um, but he does it with his own flair, and he's not just a bottom drummer. He's He's a drummer's drummer. He, does, he actually does quite a few, uh, you know, YouTube tutorials on some of the classic fills. You know, you know, maybe it's Ian Pace or you know Bonham or you know whatever. And he kind of breaks them down and stuff like that's great because you know sometimes you know when you get a little older in your age, you get complacent and uh, you know you gotta you gotta wake up the senses a little bit. So you know, going to a tutorial, watching another drummer break something down and learning yourself. Uh, with communication from another drummer that you kind of respect and, and can understand is always a great thing, you know. So I'm always learning stuff from Matt, you know, picking up these old fills and and sort of, you know, kind of getting your your basic chops back because you get so used to just learning songs and doing your thing and you know playing for the songs that you know sometimes you forget, you know, that there's you know rudiments and exercises and things that you can do just for yourself as a drummer to keep you 
inspired, you know. Now, just don't grow a mustache like Matt. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't if, if I wanted to. <laughs> he was, he was, he was, I, I, yeah, I think he's got that crazy mustache. Like, it's just a weird, and he told me he can't take it off because it's like his trademark. So now, now you. It's his thing. Yeah. Yep. Now, how long did you live in L.A.? Man, 22 years. How, how <laughs> almost, did, almost to the day. How did you see the music scene change? Because I've seen the comedy, even though I don't really do comedy, I'm moving back, you know, east in uh, at the end of this month, and I'm booking some gigs back there where they actually pay you to perform. And I've seen the whole comedy world change a lot. How did the music scene change in LA from when you were here to now? And is it is it more happening now, or was it more happening then? You know, I you know, I don't know. There's a couple of uh, you know cool jam nights that haven't happened uh, in LA in a long time, and I got to tell you, I was a little cynical when they started doing the jam nights. Uh, you know, they, they started over at the Lucky Strike on, you know, I think it was a Wednesday. And then, you know, there was, uh, you know, I'm not sure what happened, but then some of those guys went over uh, to the Whiskey on a Tuesday. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to last, you know. Um, you know, number one, because something good doesn't always last anyway in L.A. You know, people become fickle and they become spoiled and, you know, they don't support something. Then they get all pissed off when it's gone. Um, you know, and then I'm thinking, well, how are two jam nights going to survive? You know, it's already tough enough for one every week. You know, how are two going to survive? And boy, I, I was wrong. They have survived and they, they continue to do great numbers and do better than ever. Um, they're reinventing their themes every week, doing something different, dif- you know, different guests. Uh, you know, they're doing a theme to, you know, mustache rock, speaking of mustaches, or a theme to, you know, whatever, the doors, and then bringing out great artists to you know to do their rendition of of other artists that we all love and respect and so you know that since i've left i've been watching that from afar stay constant and stay successful and 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 i think that is really good news for for la you know i think it's really inspiring it's getting a lot of people an opportunity to play with other people that they normally wouldn't and um you know they're bringing some life to songs that we all know and love and they're keeping the club's busy and they're entertaining people with music and I think that is a great thing and, and that wasn't really something that was you know prevalent when I was in LA you know so I'm glad to see that stuff happening now what made you leave LA you know I you know Steve uh, you know we, we uh, you know find our uh, <laughs> you know what potentially could be our rock and you know we, we you know move out there to, to see if that would uh, but yeah I moved out for uh, you know a relationship at the time but I got to tell you, Vegas has been calling my name for a long, long time. Um, I had a couple different opportunities over the past 15 years or so to move out here, and just for some reason felt I had to be in L.A. still. I still felt that, well, I need to be in L.A. to, you know, be here, because if I'm not here, then I'm not going to be considered for gigs, you know? And I'm kind of at the point now where, you know, the relationships I have, I, I either have them or I don't. It doesn't matter whether I live in L.A. or not. It's not like I, you know, live in you know, South America, and it costs a ton of money for me to fly, you know, I'm in Vegas, I'm four hours, or I'm an hour flight away, you know, I can, you know, do anything, I can meet anybody uh, anywhere in the country and start rehearsals, uh, you know, so I'm fortunate with that, but, um, you know, I had a couple opportunities over the past, you know, decade and a half to come out here, and so it's been calling my name, it just so happened that I finally made the move, you know, three years ago this summer, and, 
you know, the relationship didn't work out, but, you know, Vegas did, you know, and I think maybe that was just a catalyst to get me out here. You know, sometimes you meet people that, you know, are there for one reason, and that one reason was to maybe, uh, you know, bring me to uh, some new opportunities, which I think Vegas has, has been giving me and will be giving me, you know, in the next coming years, you know. What is the music scene like in Vegas? Because I know a lot of people are moving to Vegas. I know a lot of comics have moved to Vegas. I know, actually, and the funny thing is, a lot of people are leaving L.A. I mean, I was I had beers with a, an actor, Peter Mernick, yesterday, who's been in a ton of stuff. You know, and he was he's uh-huh. people remember him from the Seinfeld episode. He was the cop who was yelling at the detective, yelling at Kramer when Kramer moved to L.A. And and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, like you know, now with now, like you said, you know, he has his relationships. He can put an audition on a tape. And he's like, as soon as my son, I mean, my daughter gets out of school, I'm leaving L.A. You know, what is it? Yeah. I mean, why do you think people are just leaving L.A.? I'm leaving L.A. because I'm just tired of it. And I, I know I can do Cooper Talk anywhere and, and the cost of living is disgusting out here. But what do you, why do you think people yeah. are leaving L.A.? And Would you ever come back? Well, you know, I, I never say never, but I got to tell you, you know, I, I, I've since broken up with L.A. and I don't have any... Uh, <laughs> Any hopes or um, thoughts about, you know, reconnecting with L.A., really uh, living there for a long time? I mean, I, I want to see what's out here in Las Vegas. Um, I mean, a lot of it is the opportunity. Um, obviously, you know, your dollar goes way further in a place like Las Vegas. And I just, you know, I, I kind of found myself a little stagnant there, you know. And I also kind of felt like, well, I moved to, to L.A. for a reason, and I, I didn't feel like that a reason was there anymore, you know, I didn't have to be there for the gigs, because I, I, you know, over the course of 20 years, I made those relationships, and kind of feel like, you know, I can, I've maintained them, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to make some new connections out here, to do some new things out here, and I, I kind of thought about maybe getting into, you know, the, not, I don't say the casino scene, but, you know, doing something in performance out here, I mean, there's, there's a, the drummer from Slaughter, Bloss Elias, he does, you know, Blue Man Group, you know, out here. And then he also plays in a band called Sin City Centers. And, and uh, you know, they play, you know, uh, some venues in town. They play some after shows, you know, for some of the big concerts. After the concert lets out, they're playing. And, and, you know, this guy made his move. I think he's been in Vegas for a long time. But, you know, he's got himself a great gig, you know, doing Blue Man Group. You know, he's a killer drummer and... I just think the opportunity is out here. It's, it's kind of becoming a new mini L.A., but I'm really trying to discourage that because I don't want any more people moving here because I want it to stay secret for a little bit. So don't move to Vegas. It's a horrible place to be, Steve. I lived in Vegas 20 years ago when it was a horrible place to be. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I lived, the MGM was just getting built. I, the area I lived in was nice then. Now it's a shithole. It was, on a, it was called the Desert Club. It was on a... Koval and Flamingo, I believe, and now it's just like not, it's not that good. Um, now you just moved, though, dude. I saw some pictures. Are you living like in a mansion now? What's that about? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, my uh, my girl and I found this uh, oddball crib, uh, you know, at uh, five fifteen and Trop for those of the or or the ninety five and Trop, which would be you'd probably get ninety five and Trop because that that's older. Now they call it the five fifteen. It's like a little beltway, you know, but. Uh, on the east side of town. But anyway, yeah, we found this crazy house. Um, but it's it's a labor of love. We, we got a killer deal on it to you know come in here, and, and it's a little bit of a fixer-upper. But I've still got a green thumb, and I know how to hold a hammer. And uh, so we're doing a lot of the, lot of the stuff ourselves. But um, it's, it's a great score. It's, uh, 
huge, huge, huge house. Uh, we love it. You know, we're going to get the pool going, and we got a great big backyard. And, uh, you know, and, and you couldn't find a place like this in L.A., especially for what we got it for. So, um, you know, that's another thing. And, you know, you can actually have a pretty good life and live, you know, in a, in a really nice house and not, you know, have to sign over your first and second born to do it, you know. And you can get five ninety nine steak and eggs at Ellis Island. I mean, all day long. <laughs> you know. Now you were. We have to wrap up soon, but you were recently. Uh, you were out here for the, I believe, the MS show. What was that like playing? Because that was a real all star lineup. Yeah, that was. You know, that keeps getting uh, bigger and bigger. The Rock against MS uh, that Nancy Sale puts on. Um, you know, and we played at this place called the Los Angeles Theater, which you know I, I lived there twenty two years. I never even knew it existed. I know that there's tons of history and uh, great little venues downtown. Um, but, man, I, I, you know, this place is, like, I just can't believe I hadn't been there or seen it before. It, it was just absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, she had, uh, you know, Nancy Wilson from Heart, her new band play there, which was great. Uh, one of my favorite guys, uh, my new crushes musically, is uh, Richie Cotson. He's in a band called The Winery Dogs, but he's been a solo artist forever. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he was just and, on, um, he was on two weeks ago, Cooper Talk. Yeah, he, dude, he is, uh, you know, he, he's been around forever putting out stuff, and uh, for some reason, he was always just on the outskirts of my radar, and then The Winery Dogs came, and I, I, I fell in love with them, and I was like, well, I know Richie. Richie's been around forever. He played in Poison for a little bit. Um, you know, he did an acoustic gig inside of a, a, a bar, or, you know, sort of... A, a, White Lion had played the festival in Lilyhammer with uh, Twisted Sister, and then they had an indoor, you know, kind of bar concessions area where Richie was playing acoustically, you know. And so I, I'd met him, and, you know, White Lion did a show. He was on the bill. He was the inside entertainment. And I sat and watched him, you know, after the Twisted Sister show was over. He was in there just doing his thing on his own. I was like, God, this guy's brilliant. And then kind of fell off my radar. So after the Winery Dogs, I started going back to his, his back catalog, and, you know, now his... Spotify channel is my favorite again. You know, I just I, I just did cotton. So um, that rock against MS thing is is a cool thing. And I think if anybody in LA has a chance to go and see that, uh, the next time she puts one together, it's number one for a great cause. Number two, the entertainment is um, definitely not subpar. I mean, it, it is is great. You know, they had great comics out, which was kind of a new thing. Adding some comedians, they did um, a tribute to Richard Pryor, who suffered from MS. And, uh, you know, so they have some great comics out, out there, uh, you know, Jim Florentine and uh, uh, Craig Gaff, you know. So um, just a cool event. And, you know, I, I'm sitting there going, why is this place sold out? Because it, the entertainment was just amazing. Right. Well, cool, man. Well, listen, I want, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a while. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so now give your Twitter, because I know you tweet a lot. Yeah, you know, I'm on the Twitter and Instagram at drummer tps and then facebook it's just uh you can find me at drummer troy or my troy patrick trail name and uh i'll be out with uh, the raskins uh from may 5th until uh june 17th opening up on the world on fire tour featuring ingve momstein and then after that uh we are currently still booking by the way if you guys are interested uh booking a uh, gilby clark tour and that starts uh the 21st of june and goes until the middle of july and that's with a band called L.A. Story and New Machine. So we're actually taking bookings for that now. And, uh, you know, 
Anybody cool. out there looking to book Gilby Clark of GNR? Well, that's awesome. People, check him out. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. It's at CooperTalk. My website, CooperTalk.net. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And don't forget my cookbook, StopTheSalt.com. Go there, StopTheSalt.com. 120 low-sodium recipes. Easy to make. I will autograph it for you, so get it from there. So people, follow Troy, follow me, and have a great weekend.